The Lord be with you. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you that by the death and resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, you have overcome sin and brought us to yourself, and that by the sealing of your Holy Spirit, you have bound us to your service. Renew in us, your servants, the covenant you made with us at our baptism. Send us forth in the power of that Spirit to perform the service you set before us. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Well, welcome all. Uh, I want to start out by just sort of asking um, who is interested in either confirmation or reception to the Episcopal Church? That's great. We have a lovely verger here who's going to do it. Yeah, raise your hand till you get it, and then we'll make sure you get it. Um, I just want to tell you that this is not like a contract. It looks like it. Uh, really, this is meant to be a menu to give you an idea about um, ways in which we can not conform you to the Episcopal Church, but confirm the faith that is already in you. And so I just want to walk through this. And if you don't have one, that's okay. You'll get to learn about kind of our process here. And by the way, you can always say, hey, um, Mike or Jenny, this doesn't make sense to me. This is silly, and let's talk about it, okay? <laughs> um, and I want to say that up front as we do this, whether you're, you've been coming to this, this is your first time coming to one of these, you've been here for a long time, you have my permission to say at any point, this is not what I was hoping it would be. Let's try something different. You can do that discreetly. You can do that publicly. And uh, we will try to honor you because Jenny and I are going to take turns doing this together. Um, just so you see, again, the goal of confirmation is not to conform you to the teachings of the Episcopal Church. Confirmation is meant to confirm, confirm God's presence in your life and your intention to pursue that. The truth is, we will all do that differently, and that is part of what makes the Episcopal Church unique. We decided a long, long time ago, like 475 years, that we are not a church united in specific doctrine, but a church united in worship. That means, built into our DNA, is that we... Uh, we'll value different spiritual practices. We'll be drawn to different sacraments, different ways of prayer and service. And that when we put all that together, we get a wonderful whole instead of a bunch of diverse parts that don't fit. So that's why we have a couple of things here. And this is true whether or not you want to be confirmed or reaffirmed at all. One of the great ways um, to get into the church and confirm your faith is to do things in the church. <laughs> so you'll see up here that there are many opportunities, whether you're a confirmant or you want to reaffirm your faith, or you just think, huh, you know, I've never been an acolyte in my life. You know, you don't have to be young to be an acolyte. And one of my uh, favorite moments as a church person was acolyting with my son. Um, mind you, I wasn't 15. Uh, <laughs> He was. Uh, but doing that together was actually a really neat thing to do as a family. So there's several things we do here in church that we encourage you just to put yourself into. Do it a couple of times and then see how it feels. Uh, and that's part of our confirmation and reaffirmation journey. And if you're already confirmed or reaffirmed and you say, you know, I've never ushered and I wonder what that's like. Fantastic. Okay. Uh, 
part of what's really important, I should have put the word service instead of outreach, uh, young or old, uh, cradle Episcopalian or new, of course, is that we take part in joining Christ in serving the world. We have some ways we do that here. Many of you are probably already doing that in other ways. Those things count. But what's important is that we sort of reflect on what we're doing and say, what does that have to do with my spirituality and my spiritual journey? Whether it's serving chronically homeless men and women at the Beacon or um, serving as a Cub Scout uh, master for PAC 1965. Right? So, so lots of different things here. We're going to meet um, in this space in preparation for confirmation and, um, and reception the following dates that are down here. Today's the first day, obviously. Uh, we're going to meet eight times. We ask you to come to six of these uh, so that you can get at least a lion's share. Uh, don't think of that as, as like, oh, I'll just only do six. Obviously, if you come to all eight, that's great. Um, and then uh, we ask people to be confirmed and um, to be received in the Episcopal Church to uh, come to three additional bits so we can meet as a small group and do a little more small group processing. Anybody can come to those. Anybody can come. So if you want one, I've got the, the dates here and be happy to share. Does anybody want one that didn't get one? Well, I should give you one. Oh, but but what's nice is it's got the dates and it gives you an idea of what we're doing here. And on the back is a place where you can. I've got many to spare. Anybody else want a handout? Do you want your own, Gloria? You deserve one. <laughs> You're a verger, you should have one. Thank you. Um, on the back of the place, you can put your name and sign it, but this isn't a contract, really. The goal is to try to say, you know, how can we do this mean meaningfully? Because what I want to say, and not everybody's here for confirmation, that's okay. We're going to talk about this as we get into the church a little bit more. But confirmation is the last rite of passage that is available unless you choose to be married or priesthood. This is a milestone marker in your faith development. Sometimes in the past we've said, once you're confirmed, then you can be a member. Or you can be on the vestry. Or even you can receive communion for the first time. Or you can receive communion in a new way. Um, the truth is, confirmation means many things in different places. But um, in the scheme of things, this is a rite in which we say, I was baptized as a child, God's grace was all around me, or as an adult. But today in confirmation, I make vows that to the best of my knowledge, I'm pursuing God in this Christian way of life. That could change. <laughs> but we, we get, we, this is a right in which we say, as of today, I'm all in. My intention is to follow this way of life. And in that sense, it's meant to be pursued carefully because you don't get to do it again. <laughs> does, does that make sense? Unless you're going to become a deacon or a priest. More on that in just a little bit. Um, if you're going to be uh, received, confirmation is a way in which you say, I confirmed my faith in the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America or in the Roman Catholic Church or the Moravian Church and possibly even in the Methodist Church, depending on the bishop. But what I've realized is I'm finding a fuller expression of my faith in the Episcopal Church, and I want to be received. The truth is, confirmation doesn't really give you any privileges. And this is really, really important to know. 
there's no secret handshake. There's no discount code for your pledge. There's no like special seating once you're confirmed. The truth is confirmation is something we do for ourselves. And if we do it right, actually we, we give up privileges on behalf of other people. At the end of confirmation, we say the church is the only organization in which members serve other people, not themselves. I think I have that right. <laughs> so I, I hope that's a helpful introduction uh, for you all. Uh, the outline of this, in case you want to read more at home, there is a set of books, and they're kind of long. Um, each one's kind of long. It's called uh, The Church's New Teaching Series. There are nine volumes, I think. And what they do is try to give you a, a strong understanding of the Episcopal Church, its practice, its history, sacramentality, service, ethics, how Episcopalians read the Bible as if there's only one way, but to, just to sort of say these are the options and traditionally this is what we do with Scripture. Um, Hal Snap borrowed the first one, and it's called The Anglican Vision. I have this series, only one of each, if you're interested. Uh, of course, in some ways you think, what? I have to read a book a week? That's like what I did in graduate school. Uh, you may not want to do that. You can take a longer-term loan, and the public library may have some. But I, but I do have a set of these if anybody wants to sort of borrow them. So that's kind of how we're, we're following along. Okay, that was a lot of me talking. And now I think what I'd like to do, if it's okay is ask, we're thinking about meeting the Episcopal Church again for the first time. That's sort of the description. Do you have a sense, whether you're looking to be confirmed or were confirmed a long time ago or frankly have no interest in it either way, are there guiding questions or um, time-specific things you'd like to spend as a group? Maybe you've always wondered, for example, why do you ring that bell in the church? Or... Geez, what about Episcopalians and like, I don't know, um, some civil rights stance? How do Episcopalians feel about um, gay rights or about abortion? And how do they use the Bible to talk about those things? Does anybody have preconceived sort of questions that you'd like for us to explore together? I should think of softer ones. What do we call the priest, and why do you wear those clothes? So maybe you want some... So this doesn't have to be heavy. It doesn't. It can be fun, and probably should be. Yes, ma'am. Some churches, their uh, religious leader are called a pastor. Um, some a minister, and of course, in the Episcopal Church, it's the priest. But why... Are you Which things? Oh, oh, okay, okay. <laughs> okay. All right, all right. Later on, after all this. No, no, we'll do it. We'll do it. Yes. Yes, sir. 
Thank you. Why is the Episcopal Church different in having uh, shared worship rather than shared gospel? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Nick? The short answer is yes. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. You'd like to know the history? Sure. We'll spend at least a whole day on that. We didn't spend, have to spend all of our time coming up with questions, but I do want to put to you, if at any point you start to think, oh man, I wonder about this, write it down or raise your hand and I'll add it to the board. Because what's, again, critical is not that I indoctrinate you into the Episcopal Church, because there's not that. Remember, that's the introduction. But that we confirm and have a sense of what, not, what does that mean? The truth is, when we think about our rites and our worship, they rarely ever mean one thing. They mean many things to many different people. And the question is, how can they come up with meaning or even an opportunity meaning for you? And maybe this is a really helpful way to sort of start out when we talk about the Anglican vision. That's the name of the first book. Is that... Um, the Anglican vision is that in the faith closet there are many garments. Some of them fit you, some of them don't. If you try one on and it is not a good fit, put it back in the closet because the truth is there are many other garments that might fit you. When I say garments, I mean faith practices, ways of thinking and being and functioning in the world and in the church. Quite honestly, different practices suit me better at different times of my life. Sometimes I have to get used to wearing a faith practice before I know how comfortable it feels. Sometimes it just doesn't feel comfortable. There are others we can try, and we can put them back. So in some ways, part of being an Episcopalian, I want to suggest, is not that we try out for things, 
but that we try them on. Uh, knowing that if it doesn't fit us at this stage in our life, it might later, or there's just other things. Um, maybe the start then, again, topic of Anglican vision. We'll, we will address some of these today, and if we don't today, we've got seven more times together, is to just give you a general sense of what I think we decided um, to be the Anglican vision, or that we've inherited, rather, um, and a little bit more about this bit about we've shared worship and not doctrine. I'm going to do that really briefly through a short a very short history that we'll come back to much fuller in a few weeks. And then I also want to talk about some of these, again, very shotgun approach um, that we'll come and dial back into. I hope that's a good use of time. If it isn't, you can say, listen, let's, let's, let's do that different. Most of you know that the number one reason we have an Episcopal church has to do with Henry VIII. It goes back a little bit before him, if you didn't mind me saying, to what we call the Reformations, because there wasn't just one. Now, uh, this is actually some pretty exciting history, and without, again, going too specifically in it, what's important to know is that during the Middle Ages, um, a lot of people were unhappy with the only church they had access to, because quite honestly, they weren't included in any way. See, we have a hard time thinking about this, but the church in the Middle Ages was the meeting place, the shopping mall, markets were staged both outside and within cathedrals. That's why, part of why they're so big. That's why there's a bar up front to keep animals away. Uh, that's why we had vergers. Vergers were bailiffs. They were people who kept order. So if people were snoozing, that's why you got that stick. Bam, wake up. <laughs> Animals came up front, bam, that's why you got that stick. That was a police baton. Um, we, we, we use them some, for something different now. Back in the Middle Ages, services were only done in Latin. Now, just to put this in perspective, if it's about as meaningful for me to do it in Latin now as it was then. Very few of you would have any idea what I'm saying. And to tell you uh, the real truth, this is a really good, um, this is a really good analogy. I don't know Latin. Most priests didn't know it either. So priests got up and pretended to speak a holy language, and people had no idea whether it was true or not, the priests themselves included, because so few people had the luxury of education. So people had to sit or often stand because there were no pews. They had to stand for up to an hour as the priest said, Domino Nobis and people, uh, just to give you an example of this, you know, the priest holds up the bread and the wine, and in Latin they're supposed to say, hocus corpus meum, this is the body of Christ. And at that moment, the bread turns into the flesh. Well, many priests who did not know Latin said something like, hocus pocus worm. <laughs> so people in the pew heard, hocus pocus, those are magic words. They turn bread into flesh. I'll use that at home, hocus pocus. That's the origin of the phrase, hocus pocus. It comes from illiterate priests or people who didn't hear correctly. Some of the things that happened is that people 
actually wanted connection to God. They wanted things to do. So if you know anything about the rosary, the rosary came from the Crusades. Crusaders went to retake the Holy Land. They saw Muslims with 99 beads on a string that they would use to pray the names of Allah. And they thought, man, that is so cool. I wish we had that. And they made that. They put a cross on it and called it a rosary. That's where it comes from. The Pope did not have that idea. People demanded that they have a rosary so they could count prayers during church when they had no idea what was going on. And then the church blessed it. I mean, a, a number of ways, that's what's happened. Um, there was something called a rude screen. In many ways, it was very rude, although the truth is, it's spelled like this. The priests were behind the rude screen, whispering, hoping no one knew they were illiterate. Who knows what they were saying? Because they were behind the screen, preparing the holy elements. People wanted to see what was happening. So reformations started to happen. And of course, we know the real beginning that we celebrate is Martin Luther. He wasn't the first. He just was the first one who was successful. <laughs> there were other people before him like Jan Hus and Jan Wycliffe. And you learn about those people. Um, Henry VIII is an interesting guy because he was the second-born king of Henry the second-born son of Henry the Seventh. He had an older brother, Arthur. At the time, the first-born son was the crown prince. The second-born was trained to be a bishop because you could buy the office of bishop. It was for sale. People did not like that. That's why we had reformations. Henry VIII went to seminary to be a bishop, but his brother Arthur got sick and died. That meant Henry VIII became the bishop prince. And, of course, king of England. Because he'd been trained in Catholic seminary, he was through and through Catholic. He wrote a book called In Defense of the Seven Sacraments. Some people say Thomas More wrote it. They wrote it together, but Henry VIII's opinion is in there. And, uh, again, he was a trained theologian. Uh, he defended the Roman Catholic faith until a critical moment. And we all know this. Until his wife, Catherine of Aragorn, could not conceive a male offspring. In fact, she <coughs> conceived several kids who died. They were stillborn. Actually, one of them was so malformed, Henry VIII was convinced that the marriage was wrong. That God had actually cursed that marriage. And so he sought um, to find a male heir. It, to put this in context, before Henry VIII was this thing called the War of the Roses. And Henry saw how terrible it was not to have a rightful heir. And he decided that wasn't going to happen in England again. So he secured it. And you know a little bit of the history. Henry, um, Henry decided to be Roman Catholic, except that the king of England was head of the church in England. He needed that because the pope wouldn't give him a divorce. Henry also didn't just find this expedient. He believed the marriage of Catherine was theologically wrong. It's important to know that. He wasn't just a real politician. He thought God was cursing the marriage and he needed out of it. Just a curious bit. Catherine of Aragon, Henry's wife that he wanted to divorce, had actually married Arthur, his older brother. They had never consummated the relationship because Arthur was deathly ill when they got married. So Henry argued, based on the Bible, 
but it was his duty to marry his brother's widow and have a male heir. As I told you, they were malformed children, and so what he argued for earlier, he argued against later. This is maybe too boring already. Um, <laughs> Henry VIII is a thorough Roman Catholic except for this one issue, but he dies. And uh, the child, that one male heir that he has is Edward. And Edward was actually born a very weak and sick little boy. He was colicky and from the frail and thin. And he was put on the throne when he was six. So he didn't really rule England. His advisors did. And interestingly enough, his advisors were appointed by Henry VIII's once favored wife, Anne Boleyn, who ended up getting killed, of course, who was a radical Protestant. She was so Protestant that she was not in favor of things like vestments, things like the real presence at the Eucharist. She thought the Eucharist was symbolic. In some ways, she was anti-hierarchical. Her advisors raised Edward, who made the Church of England go from this very Catholicly hierarchical position to something very Protestant. It looked like Calvin's Geneva, almost. And all the people in England had whiplash from the sudden change. <laughs> Edward only made it to 14 and he died. And then came Edward's sort of um, half-sister... There were no male heirs, remember this. So this is unprecedented that a woman sits on the throne in England. This is new. And this is Mary, the Queen of Scots. No, no uh, why did I just say that? This is, this is Bloody Mary. <laughs> this is Bloody Mary, who is extremely Roman Catholic. Oh, I forgot to tell you this. When Edward's on the throne, radical Protestantism, persecution of Roman Catholics, all the priests run away. <laughs> Because if they don't, they could be put in the stocks. They could even be killed for being Catholic. Same with lay folk. Mary does the reverse. She puts all the Protestants in the stocks. All the Catholics come back from the continent. That's why she's called Bloody Mary. And she didn't live long either. And this is where we get good old Elizabeth I. We're not really sure of Elizabeth's piety, but what we know for sure is that Elizabeth knew that that way and that way weren't going to work. There had to be something in the middle. And that has been the Anglican vision ever since. In Latin, we call it the via media, the middle way. Sounds very much like the teachings of the Buddha. And Elizabeth decided that the, uh, that the Anglican Church, the Church of England, was going to look Catholic, but believe Protestant. Now, what does that mean? Um, most of the rest of the Protestant Reformations threw out icons. I don't mean like the gold haloed paintings. I mean images. If you go into a Lutheran church still, it tends to be pretty bare. If you go into a... a um, a uh, Presbyterian church. Walls are pretty white. <laughs> At this time, when there were stained glass windows, people were breaking them. 
to get rid of all the images because they thought that was idolatry. Elizabeth said the images stay. <laughs> if you go to a Methodist church, at best, you'll see the preacher wear a black gown. If you go to a Southern Baptist church like I grew up in, the pastor wears a suit. In the Roman Catholic Church and in the Episcopal Church, there are things like, and, and these are wonderful vocabulary words when you're playing Scrabble, albs, cassocks, surpluses, chasubles, stoles, maniples. Elizabeth said, that stuff stays. <laughs> and, at the same time, in the wake of Elizabeth, every church got its own Bible in English. That's a big departure from everything happening in Latin. The Bible is now in English. She didn't do that. That came in her wake. But that's part of the legacy here. Yes, sir? That's a great question. Is it under Henry VIII or is it under Edward? I better research that. It's under one of the two. Elizabeth is the one who says it stays there. So reminder that Mary takes that away. Yep. <laughs> Elizabeth puts it back, right? Um, Elizabeth is the one who says, if you're a priest, you can be married. Mary took that away. I'm not sure Henry wanted that. But Henry's hands were tied because his first archbishop, Thomas Cranmer, got married. <laughs> the other thing uh, that becomes really, really important um, with, with sort of all this, again, is that there starts to become this opportunity for individual parishes to look very different from other parishes. Because the truth is, not everybody had silk and lace. <laughs> Uh, still, that's true today. Has anybody been before, this is a great question, to what we'd call an Anglo-Catholic parish? Do you know what that means? This is good to know. When we think about what it means uh, to be united in worship, quite honestly, the only thing guaranteed in the Episcopal Church, well, I don't even know if it's guaranteed, should be the case that we read the same readings in every church on every Sunday. That's not always true, though. A reading from the Hebrew Bible, the Psalms, a New Testament letter in general, and the Gospel every Sunday. Even that's negotiable. A lot has really become negotiable. I've been to Episcopal churches that have screens and guitars and pastors, not priests. I've been to those places. And I've been to places that have so much smoke... <laughs> that you really can't even see uh, the Lord's table, and there's a Hail Mary at the end of the service. Now, some of these very, very traditional elements, like smoke and bells and Mary and maniples, like very fancily dressed clergy, that tends to be called the Anglo-Catholic tradition because it's closer to the Roman Catholic way of being than it is to the Protestant way. If you're wondering, I don't really know what St. Thomas is. It is all over the place. <laughs> on purpose. Uh, more on that later, on purpose. But this is part of the legacy that Elizabeth made. Is she said, we're not going to see people die because they have divergent faith practices. 
That was the ultimate compromise she made that we still live into. We're not driving people out of England because they don't wear the right clothes or because they do. We're going to make space for people and that's, again, part of what fundamentally informs what we call the Anglican vision. In case you're wondering, and this is Hal's question, Anglican means England, of course, but we are... (laughs) We're not the Anglican Church, we're the Episcopal Church. That happened in uh, 1776, you know. We couldn't pray for the King and Queen of England any longer because we didn't have those people. We had to pray for our own elected officials. Um, And we decided then that we would not be the Anglican Church, we would be, and this is the true name, the Protestant Episcopal Church of America. And we usually drop that word Protestant, but now we call ourselves the Episcopal Church. And this word right here actually holds a really good key for the way in which we do some of our tradition. Does anybody know what Episcopal means? Episcopal simply means a church that is governed by bishops. A church governed by bishops. So in Greek, the word for bishop is episkopos. So here we are, episcopal. We've got bishops. In the Diocese of Texas, we actually have three and another one. (laughs) You might say, doesn't that mean we have four? No, we have three and another one. More on that later. Um, We... uh, Part of what it means to be the Episcopal Church and not the Anglican Church is that the Anglican Church does not appoint our bishops. They don't vote for them. They don't have anything to say about our doctrine or practices or clergy. So what we decided is that we are not an Anglican Church, but we are in communion with the Anglican Church. There are other churches in communion, like the South African Church, or uh, the church in New Zealand. Often what that means is, again, they have their own government, but they say, we are closely yoked together because of our tradition and because of the way in which we choose to worship. There are many ways in which um, we here, Episcopalians, don't quite agree with the Church of England, and especially with churches in Africa. But we've sort of said that those differences don't keep us apart. Well, we hope that's the case. Clergy are interchangeable. It's true that if I moved to England, a bishop could receive me into the Anglican Church and I could be a priest in England. It's up to the bishop. (laughs) Because remember, the church is governed by bishops. And this is maybe, uh, without being too strange, a great way to talk about Another thing that makes us unique here, and really there's three in in the um, Anglican vision. We decided, and maybe it's good to build this contrast, really brief history here of the Reformations and how that informs who we are. There were many groups in the Reformation that said the only thing that matters when we're trying to figure out what's right and wrong and how we're to live and function as a church is scripture. It's all about the Bible only. As a Southern Baptist, that's the way I grew up, and an independent Christian, that was it. 
So, you ever were in doubt about something, you opened the Bible. So much so that we were taught the Bible is the Word of God. We were taught that the Bible is like that manual in your car that tells you how to take care of the car. Any question you had about cars was in the manual. By the way, that's not true. But we were taught (laughs) that everything's in the manual. Scripture alone, because human beings make mistakes. And that makes sense. We do, right? But this is the way we were sort of taught. In the Roman Catholic Church, all decisions are made with the interplay between Scripture and tradition. So that's different from the low Protestant perspective. Um, There's actually this really interesting moment that happens in the Diet of Worms. That's when Martin Luther is being examined to see whether or not he will be excommunicated or not. Martin Luther says, only Scripture. So there's things the church is doing that are not in the Bible and we should stop it, especially selling indulgences. Reminder to you. When you commit a sin, you're supposed to do two things traditionally. Feel sorry and make it right. (laughs) Making it right is called penance. Feeling sorry is called contrition. At the time of Luther, the Roman church was saying, you got to be sorry. But if you don't have the time to make it right, don't worry. Other people have done great stuff, more than they needed to, and the church can use that stuff they did extra to cover yours. You still got to be sorry, but you don't got to do penance if you pay for it. No one knows where that idea comes from biblically, uh, particularly Martin Luther. So he says, no, that's bad. Martin says it's only the Bible. And then there's this famous moment where sort of, not the Inquisitor, but the, the, the Roman church's front person says, Martin, you want to base everything on Scripture, but where do you think Scripture came from? People decided what got put in and what got put out. And don't you see that's tradition? Other traditions are, there are bishops. Not just some, there are archbishops. And there is the Pope. That's a tradition. One of the biggest traditions that's important is that God didn't just give us the Bible. God told the disciples certain things to do. And they didn't write all those down. But they told them to their disciples, who told them to their disciples, who told them to their disciples. And they didn't just tell them, they laid hands on their head and said, I'm passing this on to you. And hands were laid back, back, back to Peter and back to Jesus. And we call that the apostolic succession. That is, somebody's hands were laid on somebody else's head all the way back to Jesus. And those are the bishops and the popes. And during all this time, there's a pope who says, Martin, you say scripture alone. I say, actually, that when the pope is sitting in his seat, the pope has more say than the Bible. And I'll prove it. There were some books called the Apocrypha. 
These are books like One and Two Maccabees, Baal and the Dragon, Judith. The Pope said, I'm putting them in the Bible <laughs> just to show you I can do that. So if you're ever wondering why the Catholic Bible is different from the Protestant Bible, it's because the Pope says the Pope has more power than the Bible. That happened in the Council of Trent. The Episcopal Church has these two. But we've got another one. We've got reason. We sort of say these three together are meant to inform every ethical decision, theological decision, and religious practice. You think about that. And I'm not saying anything superior. This is a different mix, depending what you do. I grew up hearing that the world was made in six days because that's how the Bible read. As an Episcopalian, we have this opportunity to say, well, is that scientifically reasonable? It doesn't mean what's the right interpretation of the Bible. It means are there multiple interpretations of the Bible, each equally reasonable? And to be honest, the question in my youth was, how old is the world? The question I think the Episcopal Church asks is, what's the point of it all anyway? Whether it took six billion years or six days, God's behind it and has created us intentionally. I think that's the Episcopal tradition, and reason allows room for there to be differences of interpretation. That doesn't mean it's always better. Sometimes, sometimes we use our reason to get in lots of conflict with each other, but hopefully we're held together in worship even when we disagree, because that's the goal of it. Um, Communion means common unity. So the hope is that our common unity holds us tighter than our uncommon difference of opinion. This isn't the only one. If you are a Methodist, John Wesley, by the way, was an Anglican priest until the day he died. He had no goal of creating the Methodist church. He says there's also experience. He was a romantic so he believed in deep, visceral feeling. Um, he kind of was a Pentecostal, to put that in normal terms. Like there was just this ineffable experience of Jesus drawing you and speaking to you. And he said that's different from reason. The Episcopal Church actually says no, experience goes into reason. This is part of what it means to be an Episcopalian, is to juggle three balls at the same time, all of the time, knowing that they don't always agree. Tradition says women cannot be priests. Scripture can be used to say, frankly, whatever you want. In the Episcopal Church, we've decided women can be priests based on reason. Tradition says priests can't marry, at least tradition since 400. Scripture says Peter, the first pope, had a wife. Reason says clergy can marry. This is why we've made that decision. I hope that's sort of helpful. I know that's very, very broad brush, but in some ways this is part of the Anglican tradition is that we're not supposed to say, well, the Bible says it, I believe it. We're supposed to connect the Bible with tradition and reason at all points. Knowing that we might come to different places together, but we have more in common than we have apart. 
If it's not going to bore you too much, maybe I can talk to you just a little bit more about bishops. <laughs> Is this okay? You're going to tell me if you want to do something different, right? Or maybe I should pause, actually, instead of making this too much of a lecture. Have you ever gotten into trouble trying to balance these three things? Would anybody be willing to share a way in which this has been uh, troublesome to hold all these together? Please. So, when we get the marriage service that the church uses from the scripture or tradition or reason, because <laughs> um, should there be a opportunity for a gay couple to get married here? How does the marriage service that we traditionally use mm -hmm. fit into the reason and the scripture? Thank you for asking that. So the answer is, does the marriage right, and this is really important when we talk about um, services, we usually say rights. Not R-I-G-H-T, but rights. And, and I think this is important to say, like what's happening when we do services. Rights are things that take us from one way of being to another. They're meant to introduce transition. So think about what a marriage right does. It takes two single people and makes them one unit. At the end, they're different. Think about what the funerary right does. It takes somebody uh, and puts them into the arms of the Good Shepherd. It's meant to change the way we think or the way we be. Communion right is supposed to take us who need nourishment and give us nourishment. Baptism right changes the person. That's how it's supposed to be, right? Where do the rights come from? The answer is this one or this one or this one. Yes. Uh, all of them. There's phrases that come in all rights that come straight out of Scripture. Of course, if you ever watch a movie, you will see, in general, uh, this traditional phrase, Dearly beloved, we come together in the presence of God and one another. That's not in the Bible. That's tradition. And then, of course, there's reason. And part of the reason that you'll see, um, I do weddings. I just want you to know. I celebrate weddings. And um, in the 29-ish weddings I've celebrated, there's an opportunity to pray specifically for the couple to have children. I didn't pray that prayer. Because who's to say whether A, the couple wants it, or it's medically possible? I asked the couple if they want it. You see, I asked them if they want it. But in the prayer book itself, it's optional. The prayer book puts it sort of in parentheses. Um, so there's always room within the tradition and the scripture. To obey, yeah. That's kind of well, that's not in the marriage right. It's not in the right. It used to be. 
but it's not anymore. That's the good news. And that's where we'll talk about how this changes with these things. And they constantly change each other. And because we're talking about marriage, and we'll dial down on this a little bit more, um, according to tradition, marriage is for procreation only. you ever wondered, why is it the Roman Catholics can't use birth control? It's because it's limiting procreation, which was the reason to get married. We're somewhere between Catholic practice and Protestant belief. The number one reason for marriage in the Episcopal Church is unity. Procreation is optional. <laughs> which is why it's in parentheses in the marriage rite. Unity which is we'll celebrate the marriage of people who are 80 years old. I know you could say, well, Sarah and Abraham were old. <laughs> Older than that. They were, so that's scriptural. <laughs> They're not going to be having kids. Let's just be honest about it. Y yes, ma'am. <laughs> There's a lots of reasons. This is some, maybe we should save this for the sacraments, but I think this is a good uh, taste. It depends on what you read. So, you know, way back in Genesis chapter 1, God makes male and female in God's image and says they're very good. When you read Genesis chapter 2, God makes a human being and sees the human being as sort of alone. So God tries making all the animals to be a companion. And the saber-toothed tiger is not a good companion for the human being. Nor is the Tyrannosaurus Rex, nor the American Lion, now extinct. Those aren't good. So God decides, I've got to do something different. All depends how we read Scripture. There's lots of traditions. The rabbinic read is that the first human being was actually neither male nor female, and that when God makes the human being, God doesn't use a rib... It's a deceptive word in Hebrew. It says God puts the human being asleep and creates the woman from the side of the first human being. And now for the first time, there's distinctly male and distinctly female. And the rabbis say in marriage is when humanity is completed because the two become one again. They started one and now they come back together as different, but they're still somehow one. The human being is naked and unashamed. They come together, they're naked and unashamed. The first thing that happens when they eat the fruit in the garden, they know they're naked and they're ashamed. <laughs> the rabbis say marriage is when two people come together again, are naked and not ashamed. They're not just talking about skin. They're saying people are vulnerable completely with one another and instead of being ashamed or having their insecurities pressed on, they're cradled by one another. So according to the rabbis, it's all about unity. If you know anything about Orthodox Judaism, it's all about procreation. So Judaism, just like Christianity, has these two different movements in it. My brother's an Orthodox Jew, by the way. It's marriage is for procreation. It is. And unity is in parentheses. <laughs> if you read the marriage right, marriage was intended by God. And this, this is a good thing. <laughs> And then I'll say one more word about the book that I'm holding, and that'll probably hold us for today. I want to say it right. This is what we say at every marriage if we do it out of this book. 
The bond and covenant of marriage was established by God in creation. Just talked about that, right? Our Lord and Jesus Christ adorned this manner of life by His presence and first miracle at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Signifies to us the mystery of the union between Christ and the church. And Holy Scripture commands it to be honored among all people. The union of husband and wife and heart, body, and mind is intended by God for their mutual joy, for the help and comfort given one another in prosperity and adversity. And now listen to this. And when it's God's will for the procreation of children and for their nurture and knowledge of the Lord. In the rite itself, procreation comes third and only when it's God's will, parenthetically. You see how that goes? That's a Protestant position. The rest of the rite is Roman Catholic. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Now, one last word about this book that I'm holding, and we'll spend a whole day on this. This is called the Book of Common Prayer, and it was the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer's great idea about how the Episcopal Church, that is, or sorry, the Anglican Church under Henry VIII, could actually be different and unique from the Roman Catholic Church other than the king was in charge. Thomas Cranmer, Archbishop of Canterbury, as a Roman Catholic, went during the Reformations to the continent and studied intently in monasteries, met with Protestant reformers like Martin Luther and uh, other German Protestants and um, Swiss Protestants. He secretly got married to a nun. <laughs> and he put together this book called the Book of Common Prayer, which was meant to say, how could we be gathered in worship even if we had different doctrine? We could by prayer. That's an interesting thing, isn't it? It includes, as Hal asked, what's the daily office? But it also includes, actually, everything we pretty much do in the Episcopal Church. If you want to know why we do marriage, the marriage rite is in here, and you can read it. And it's actually pretty transparent what we understand marriage to mean, based on what I just shared with you. If you want to know what happens when we ordain a bishop, the service is in here, tells you everything that is going to be said. Doesn't say... A bishop has to be tall. Doesn't say a bishop has to be a woman. Doesn't say a bishop has to be athletic or meek. Says what the vows of a bishop are and what we're going to affirm when we consecrate somebody to do it. Lots of variety, but we've decided the characteristics and vows of the bishop and the priest and the layperson and the deacon. And this was Thomas Cranmer's idea of how we could be very different people, but we could share in worship and in prayer. And this is where our communion service comes from every week. This is where morning prayer comes from, among other things that we'll explore a little bit later. That's part of the Anglican vision is we've got something to unify us in the middle of our diversity, and it's worship. When you read these prayers, there is no prayer for Beto O'Rourke to win the seat for Senate. There is no prayer for Ted Cruz to win. There is a prayer for our elected officials to govern with justice and righteousness. And that's the unity, you see. Regardless of your politics, we are to pray for our elected officials to serve, unity, to serve justice and righteousness. We don't have to be united in our opinions. <laughs> Justice and righteousness are worthy of our worship. That's what the book says.
I think it's right, by the way. I think, I th I think it's right. I do. Um, questions or comments? Yes, sir. Thank you. I, I hope what, the, what this position really draws us to, if we dial down reasonably, is to appreciatively inquire about other spiritual practices, whether they be Mormon, Hindu, Buddhist, Anglo-Catholic, Lutheran, or they just worship at a different Episcopal church. Appreciatively inquire, knowing at the end of the day we might say, hey, um, that posturing that you do five times a day is really not for me, but I see how it's meaningful for you. Uh, that's very different from the church I was raised in, which had very sharp rules about who's in and who's out. Right? The goal is we're in it together. <laughs> yeah. Any other thoughts, comments, questions, or concerns? Thank you for being here. See you next week. If you ever have any things like, hey, I, was, I didn't want to raise my hand and say this was terrible, email me and, uh, and we will adjust. <laughs>